Welcome to the Revolution Podcast, a joint project of the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. Here we engage leaders in conversations around how we navigate these uncharted times in our schools in a way that truly revolutionizes the learning opportunities our students experience daily. In today's conversation with Eric Duncan, Senior Data and Policy Analyst at EdTrust, Eric shares the importance of building trust and leveraging data-driven decision-making to not only recruit and hire educators of color, but also ensure that we foster an environment that supports educators of color to thrive. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. I'm Kristen Wendell with the New Teacher Center, and today I'm speaking with Eric Duncan, Senior Data and Policy Analyst on the P12 team at the Education Trust. Let's start off with you telling our listeners a bit about yourself and your work at the Education Trust. Essentially, I work on any efforts from the state, local, or federal level to support policy changes to increase the racial diversity of the workforce and ensure that students have equitable access to quality educators. NTC and the Education Trust campaign has been focused on this idea of revolutionizing education. So what type of revolution would you like to see in our schools? Thinking about changing systems and interrogating some of the traditional ways that we've measured student success, the way we hire teachers, the way we support teachers, it's revolutionary in itself. The fact that we're even having a conversation about, you know, interrogating those systems and looking at things from an anti-racist lens, again, which is super revolutionary. And I think people may not realize how difficult it is to change the way we think about systemic practices, looking at systems whether it's hiring practices, whether it's recruitment measures, whether it's retaining teachers, any of those things, looking at how the systems that created those outcomes and making sure that we look at them from an anti-racist perspective, to me, is really revolutionary. And so you focus in on policies related to educator quality, as well as increasing racial diversity of educator workforce. So how do you think educator professional learning needs to change to lead to or to support a more diverse educator workforce? A lot of folks talk about culturally responsive practices or culturally competent practices. I think there's a lot of validity to the fact that culturally responsive and affirming school settings climates are extremely important to ensuring that folks of color and folks from different backgrounds feel empowered in schools and feel secure and safe and able to achieve the professional success that they would like. I think a big part of that is shaping professional learning around those types of practices, professional learning around how to connect with families from different backgrounds and ensure that that is at the core of providing supports to the students that are being served, making sure in terms of pedagogical practices that instruction is more student-centered. If educators were led in that way in terms of the professional learning, what it would create is more positive school climates for all people, races, backgrounds, which I think will then lead to one of the issues that we have, which is the retention of teachers of color is at a rate that's much lower than white teachers, and that if school climates are more affirming and more positive, teachers will stay, and then we'll see a more diverse workforce overall. Let's say we have a school leader, school principal, or a district leader listening right now, and they're thinking, hmm, my teaching population is not diverse. What would you say to them is, is the first step they could take or a next step they should take to start working to recruit, hire, or retain a more diverse workforce? If you look across your school or room or building and you don't see teachers of color, it starts with some of the recruitment and hiring practices and looking at that and saying, where am I recruiting from? 
I think there are ways to sort of build pipelines. And I think it starts with having different recruitment strategies. If you're calling colleagues for teachers, those actions will lead to the same type of candidates. But if you're looking at preparation programs that prepare a more diverse workforce, and there's data out there to show that, if you are not calling the same colleagues, but calling other folks who maybe have more diverse teaching populations, and you are interrogating your hiring practices, you know, I think there, in a lot of ways, folks do maybe bring in or recruit more intentionally people of color to apply for positions, but the hiring protocols are not supportive of the candidates once they bring them in. Maybe interrogating those and figuring out where along the pipeline am I losing out on these types of candidates. Starts with the data analysis phase. There's a lot of milestones that you have to check to get from we are thinking about trying to get people in the pipeline to we have the staff in our school and they're being retained and they're being supported in a way to are actually living into what we're trying to do. And I appreciate you for helping us think about those data points. And we've tried at EdTrust, tried to put out some of the research that we've collected and, and gathered about retention. You know, we've seen recruitment sort of go up. We've More educators of color have entered the pipeline in the last 20, 30 years than previously. But when retention rates are much lower than those of white teachers, I think that really is about working conditions and school climates and opportunities for growth and ensuring that folks of color feel supported and feel like they're valued. I think that's an area that we have a lot of growth to do. Can you give us an example of where you've seen policy make changes at one or more of those points in the pipeline? Boston Public Schools is an example where they sort of said, well, we need to gather some of our educators, particularly our Black males, because that's an area that the data shows that, you know, the Black males are leaving the classroom at an alarming rate. Let's get them together. Let's talk to them and figure out what are some of the conditions that are leading to this. A couple of things emerge. One is that there aren't those safe and supportive spaces where Black male educators could come together and talk about some of the issues that they had and work together and feel supported in, in a trusting environment where they could troubleshoot issues. Boston Public Schools created these affinity groups and provided opportunities for educators of color to come together and talk and fellowship and plan and all of those things that are really important to have spaces professionally to do. They heard from these conversations that these educators don't feel like there are leadership opportunities or opportunities for growth or don't feel like their school leaders or their the folks who are making decisions about who sort of is getting these leadership roles didn't feel like they were valuing the contributions of the Black educators. Boston Public Schools created leadership pipeline opportunities, creating a clear pipeline and a clear set of criteria to succeed and to avail themselves of those positions. Massachusetts is doing a similar thing where they've created programming as sort of a leadership pipeline program to diversify the superintendents in the state. The more leaders who are making hiring decisions who are deliberately focusing on the educators who have traditionally been left behind, the more diverse and the more the better outcomes you'll see. They've invested resources in some of the leadership development and pipeline opportunities to diversify the superintendent in their state. Those are a few examples, like I said, of deliberate action in response to feedback and surveys or data collection, whatever you want to call it, that the state and district receive. 
I appreciate that call out to data because as you were sharing, I was like, oh, well, there's quantitative data that Boston Public Schools is looking at, right, in terms of numbers of black male educators and where they are and what they're doing. And then you also have the qualitative data, that information that's surfacing from those affinity groups and from listening to conversations. How might a district or school leader start to gather some of that data if they're hearing this conversation and they're like, where do I start to get the information I need to make sure I'm not responding to someone else's data, but what's actually happening here in my district or school? Some districts, if you know you don't necessarily feel comfortable bringing a whole bunch of folks together in a room and leading conversation, you can put out surveys. You can hire a consultant. Use some funds to bring somebody in who's trained on facilitating these types of conversations and saying, okay, we're going to do an investigation of conditions, convene the right folks to get the information that's necessary, whether it's through focus groups or one-on-one conversations. It's really the investment. Does any of your research touch on what either new teachers need or pre-service teachers, what they need to make that transition from training to a classroom or to come back after one year? A lot of the research points to teachers of color who don't feel as prepared to teach and teachers of color end up going into settings that maybe are not as well-resourced or are considered sort of more difficult to teach in. I can remember even myself as a new teacher being one of the younger black males in a school full of black students being tasked with roles, things like you need to deal with these students. They get along with you really well. When they're in my classroom, they don't listen to me. So you should spend some of your planning time making sure that they're well behaved or maybe bringing them into your classroom to help them with instruction. That has led to some of the retention challenges, mentor support programs, residency programs. Those are some of the LPI calls, the high retention pathways. As a first year and second year teacher, I needed other black males to go to and who were in the classroom and say, hey, this was a tough day. Like, can we talk through this? And to have sort of a listening ear and to have folks that supported me. And it sounds like a community effort too. finding community, whether that community is someone who's been assigned to you or the space is made to build community with those who are having similar experiences or have had similar experiences to really kind of unpack for yourself what's happening. And these things are happening informally. You have to find your network of folks, but I would have benefited from a little bit more of an intentional effort because even the folks who I was able to sort of connect with who were my peers worked in the environments that were not the same as mine. Being able to, you know, have an intentional collaboration, I think that would have really helped making schools and making the profession itself feel like one that would be something that I could grow into. It's also making me think about sustainability and how do we create schools that help sustain our educators of color as opposed to ask for the additional emotional labor or that just extra work that is put on Black and Latino men because we often see schools that aren't as diverse as they should be gender or race. And so then you have the white women teachers running around trying to find people to to assign to their students and that is not sustainable. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So one thing we're seeing coming out of the pandemic around the systemic level is just the erosion of trust of educators in the system. So in places where we're, we're seeing that high level of erosion of trust, like what might a system leader do to start regaining that trust with the teachers in their district or area? I think that is one of the harder things to rebuild. And it, there's so many layers to it, not just a pandemic, but 
the racial and, and social conditions that you know we've been dealing with as people of color for our entire lives and it's been brought to focus even the most well-intentioned leaders in this space it's hard to as people of color for me even in particular to feel comfortable all the time talking about these issues feeling like there's a, a good space to have these conversations even in an organization like Trust, it can be at times you want to strike the right balance of speaking about it in a productive way while you have so many emotions tied behind it. I think it goes back to creating spaces where the trust is there and the community, a sense of community is there, creating those spaces for folks to have those types of conversations or maybe not leading and creating them, but not interfering with those natural spaces. The best thing as a leader to build trust is to listen and to intentionally react and show that you listened. It seems simple, but the follow-up isn't always there. Follow-through is really important. I think vulnerability is really important. Saying, I don't have all the answers. I'm not the best person always to say these things. I'm struggling with this. I want to listen and understand and react and invest in ways to support this work and to support building the trust and supporting folks who maybe we haven't always supported, I think that's the most important thing. There are no checklist answers to adaptive problems, because I feel like often what I have seen happen is we want to hear what you need. We want to hear what you're, what will make you feel more heard or more supported. And then everyone gives that information. And then you're like, oh, wait, didn't we take a survey a while back? Or like, didn't we get feedback on something and nothing changes? And so then people start to divest even from the efforts that may be made to listen and make changes. Um, so I appreciate that kind of the importance of making the space and doing something with it once people have shared with you what it is that they need to move forward. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think generations or two ago, there would be leaders who would, you know, survey their employees to figure out how they feel. I mean, that's a new thing. So let's, let's give credit to where it's due. But the follow-up to me doesn't seem to indicate a, a real dedicated investment in making the systemic changes that are necessary. When an organization does a survey, a lot of what comes out is that there are inequitable outcomes or conditions for different groups. The organization says, okay, let's hire a consultant who can come in and lead a couple of trainings. That is shallow. Are you actually investing in a role that can change the systems and culture of your of your workplace? Or are you just bringing in a person to do a training for two months or for six months? Or are you bringing in a person to parade your efforts of uh, diversifying or creating more equitable spaces, but that person really doesn't have any power or influence in your organization to make the policy changes that are necessary to create more equitable outcomes? That to me is where trust is broken. Yeah, it's, it's that authenticity. It's an authentic response. It makes me think about this image one of my coworkers sent me off Twitter, and it's like a cracked foundation with like a Band-Aid over the massive crack. And it's like hiring, you know, it's like institutional racism. And it's like hiring a diversity consultant is like the Band-Aid. That is not what's going to fix the foundation because it's actually a foundation that's cracked. It's the root of what we're seeing. And we have to do much more than lip service to making a change. So we've talked a little bit about this earlier, but I want to call back to what you would suggest a listener, maybe they're a parent, a community member, um, maybe they're an educator, a teacher, a leader. If you were to say, like, here's a call to action for you 
for the next week, the next month for what they might be able to do to call for policy change, to either create a more diverse workforce in their local schools or to do a better job of retaining? Like what's something they can do that's actionable? Vote. (laughs) I know, you know, elections are coming up. We have a couple of really big ones. And as somebody who maybe doesn't always believe in the political system and, you know, the uh, ways that I can support our communities, I think at this time, it's so important to have that voice. And so voting in any of these major elections, local elections, and understanding what the policy backgrounds and positions are of, of candidates is so important. When you talk about some of the major decisions that have to be made or some of the steps that need to be taken to do things like diversify the workforce, folks who make laws and who are responsible for allocating resources that can really make substantive changes are the elected officials in a lot of ways. What we try to do at Trust is share as much data and research as possible to inform practice and being as eager to read up on and being well-informed on what the exact conditions are in your society, in your schools, in your settings that you care most about, I think it's so important. And that goes to diversifying the workforce. We have a tool coming out and there are five major things that we recommend states should be doing. And the first one is making data transparent, actionable, visible for advocates. Because if you don't know that your district is only employing a workforce that has 2% teachers of color, you won't know that that it's a problem and you won't know that you need to advocate for change. And if you don't know that, it's important. And so being informed both from a data perspective and understanding what the problem is and then why it's important to solve the problem is so important. I appreciate that. Can you speak a little bit more about this tool that's coming out? Hopefully by the end of October, we will have a 50-state scan of data and policies related to diversifying the workforce. And many states will have school-level data broken down to include at what rate are, say, Black students that have access to same-race teachers in the state, or in some cases, districts. What percentage of schools don't have a single teacher of color on staff? And then for each state, we're measuring or rating them on some of what we've researched as the best policy practices to diversify the workforce at the state level, starting with the data question. Does the state share data, make it publicly available on their website or in that format on the school level diversity of of their teacher workforce? Do they have data on the racial demographics of teacher preparation programs, both by number, you know, diversity of current candidates versus completers? how they've invested in prep programs, whether it's creating program standards that make programs share ways that they're recruiting a more diverse workforce, or it's investing in opportunities for students of color to go to these programs through loan forgiveness programs, through scholarship. So a bunch of policies that we're rating each state to see if what they're doing and if they are doing it at the level that is necessary to really make improvements on the the racial diversity of the workforce. That tool will be out uh, for advocates and policymakers and folks to sort of compare what is my state doing against others? What are some of the states that are doing this really well, like the Massachusetts example? And what can I do to advocate my state to improve in this area? The data nerd in me is sitting here. Black off four hours. <laughs> like, like, dig into the data. That is really exciting. 
I'm excited as well. I am also really thankful that you brought up the importance of voting. And I feel like the pandemic has actually made a lot of people realize that superintendents, which may be voted on depending on where you are, and school boards, which may or may not be locally elected depending on where you are, the power that those people and bodies of people have to make decisions that influence so much. Let's learn. Let's ask questions so that we can make sure that that those are the most informed groups of people where we have the capacity to do that as citizens. 100%. It's so important. And even the lack of federal leadership on this has just been so detrimental to even opening schools in a safe way. Was there anything else you wanted to share that we didn't touch on in our conversation? One thing I think for folks who are in states that probably will be affected by the recession or a recession and some staffing decisions, look at your state policy around reduction in force. There are states and even districts now who have had to make cuts and decisions that have detrimentally affected the diversity of their workforce and have stifled efforts to recruit a more diverse workforce. Make sure you look at your your state policy. NCTQ.org has a really good tracker for this. And that you're having conversations with your school leaders, your district leaders about what will happen if cuts are made and which teachers are going to be affected. Go check the data, check the policies, call your people. Check everybody. Check check the policy, check the data, check your people. Check, check, check. And there it is. Um, Eric, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for elevating the information around the upcoming tool from Education Trust. I think that that will be really useful for our listeners. And I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us on the Revolution Podcast, sponsored by the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. To engage more deeply in our work, please visit our Revolution Campaign website at www.newteachercenter.org.